Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. It's your destination for conversations with the authors and illustrators whose books are shortlisted for our annual prizes. My guest for this episode is Eldon Yellowhorn, who co-wrote the book, What the Eagle Sees, Indigenous Stories of Rebellion and Renewal. What the Eagle Sees is shortlisted for the Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Eldon is a member of the Pikani Nation, and as you'll hear in my conversation with Eldon, he has an extensive and fascinating background in archaeology, which he blends with his interest in Indigenous history and story. He's a professor of First Nation Studies and Archaeology at Simon Fraser University and has written several books for adults and has also co-written the book Turtle Island with his co-author Kathy Lowinger. In What the Eagle Sees, readers are transported through history and across Turtle Island to read the stories of what Indigenous people did when invaders arrived on their homelands. This powerful book blends stories with illustrations and photographs to connect past and present stories of resistance and rebellion. Eldon starts our conversation with a reading from What the Eagle Sees. Uh, the section that I'm going to be reading on horses, uh, I want to use it to demonstrate how uh, history, mythology, and archaeology all combine to give us a better appreciation of the role of horses in uh, native culture, beginning from when they start to transform the way people lived and what we learned about them in the intervening years. When the St. Mary's River Dam Reservoir in southern Alberta was drained for maintenance in 1997, archaeologists made an important discovery at Wally's Beach on the reservoir. They found fossils of Ice Age animals, as well as imprints of the pathways that led from the prairie down to the river, where the animals drank and swam. One of the animals whose fossils were found was an extinct species of horse that once lived on the North American plains. Cut marks on the bones show that the horses found at Wally's Beach had been butchered at the site. We know that early people once hunted these small horses for food. Horses went extinct as the climate warmed and as new species such as the bison invaded their grazing land. During the last ice age, about 14,000 years ago, horses crossed the Bering Land Bridge to Asia where they thrived. In 1519, the Spanish arrived in Mexico with horses in the holes of their ship. For the first time in thousands of years, horses were back in their old homeland. Although the ice age animals were smaller, They were the ancestors of the big horses we know today. The few horses that survived the grueling ocean voyage in Spanish ships became the vast herds that brought a new era for many cultures across the continent. Trade routes from all directions led to Taos Pueblo. The fair in the main plaza buzzed with the call of traders bartering seeds, jewelry, feathers, shells, and pottery. Around 1625, Spaniards brought horses to the trade fair there, and that was where the people from the southern plains got their first horses. They had no name for horse, so they borrowed the Spanish word caballo, which soon became cavala. Northern plains people didn't trade directly with the Spanish, but within a hundred years of trading with southern nations, they had horses too. 
Northern Plains people had their own explanation for the origin of horses. They were a gift from the spirit world. And this is a Blackfoot story about the origin of horses. Back in the days when Blackfoot people only had dogs to serve them, and they made all their their tools from stone, there lived a boy who was eager to show that he was grown up. He decided to leave home to seek the help of spirit beings. He walked out onto the prairie without any destination in mind. After some days, when his water supply was dwindling, he saw a lake in the distance. His delight turned to disappointment when he tasted the water and found that it was brackish, not fit for drinking. Thirsty and tired, he sat down against a boulder and called out to the spirits for help. Soon he fell asleep. In his dream, he heard a clear voice. Water chief, the spirit of the lake, had heard the young man's plea. What is troubling you, he asked. He listened to the young man's tale of hunger and thirst. Then water chief said, my boy, I can see that you have a good heart. Your people will look to you to be a strong chief. I will help you. Water chief gestured to the lake and said, I am the chief of all the animals swimming here. I will give you one of my favorites. He braided some grasses into into a rope. You must take this rope and walk away from the lake toward the sunrise. You will hear noises, but do not look back until daybreak. When the boy awoke, he saw the rope and knew that it was a gift from Water Chief. He picked up the rope, and as the dawn broke, he walked towards the east, just as he had been told. He heard strange noises behind him. He was tempted to turn and look, but he remembered Water Chief's words. Finally, he saw Sun leave his lodge and light the day. Only then did he look behind him. Following him was a strange animal that looked like elk without antlers. But that was as tame as the dogs in his camp. It was a horse. He walked up to the horse with his rope and reached out his hand. It did not shy away. The young man took the animal home, and as Water Chief had promised, he became a great chief. He gave horses their Blackfoot name, Elk Dog. Ever since, Blackfoot people have always owned many elk dogs. This part is a story about Sakumapi. Sakumapi was a Cree man who became an elder in the Blackfoot tradition. During the winter of 1783, he taught the mapmaker David Thompson many things. He explained that Blackfoot warriors saw that horses looked like elk, but they served humans in the same way dogs did. So they combined the word for elk, ponoka, and the word for dog, imeta, to get ponokometa, the Blackfoot word for horse, elk dog. Thank you. Thanks. I was wondering if you could maybe start us off with this interview and telling a little bit about yourself and your journey to come to write this book, but also um, Turtle Island, which I know came before this one. Yeah, my, well, my training is in archaeology. I have been working in archaeology now for 40 years. I can hardly believe I'm saying that. <laughs> uh, I got my first job in 1980 in archaeology as a crew member for a, a trip into the Birch Mountains in northern Alberta. And uh, ever since then, I've been in one way or another uh, involved with archaeology. As a student, you know, as a uh, working with uh, other archaeologists at 
sites where I helped excavate uh, sites at places such as Head Smashed In, and also in uh, Colorado and uh, some sites here in, in British Columbia as well. I came out to British Columbia in 1989 to start graduate school at the Simon Fraser University. And then I also did some historic archaeology uh, in northern British Columbia at a place called McLeod Lake, uh, which was uh, the first European settlement west of the Rocky Mountains established by Simon Fraser in 1805. And for a while, it was uh, an important trade center because all the fur, tra fur traders and people who were involved with that you know, sort of went through Fort McLeod. And then uh, I went to uh, McGill University to do my PhD uh, in Montreal. And I spent my spent three years, uh, three years there. I uh, didn't get involved with any uh, archaeology down there, uh, but I did uh, learn to speak French and uh, became part of that uh, cohort at McGill that uh, students who were really involved in uh, their research. Uh, and then uh, my research at, at McGill was actually, uh, I started investigating Blackfoot oral narratives and uh, looking at them as a potential source for explanation for archaeological manifestations on the Northern Plains. And I also uh, had an Another goal of to seeing it, to see if we could use archaeology and archaeological methods uh, to interpret Blackfoot oral narratives and to see if we can use that uh, as a way of uh, establishing a chronology for uh, oral narratives. Uh, and actually, I was quite successful with that. In fact, now I can very confidently uh, establish when certain uh, myths entered Blackfoot uh, culture. So, for example, I can say, oh, this this myth comes to us from 900 A.D. This story entered Blackfoot culture at 500 A.D., or whereas this other story entered Blackfoot mythology about 3,000 A.D. or 3,000 years ago. So, uh, using using archaeological methods, I can now put some chronological order to our oral oral narratives. So, I began uh, teaching at. SFU, Simon Fraser University, in uh, 1998, and uh, I've been there ever since. First, I was in the Department of Archaeology, and then uh, as my career progressed at uh, Simon Fraser University, I established the Department of First Nation Studies in 2012, and I was chair for the department until 2017, and uh, recently we changed our name from the Department of First Nation Studies to the Department of Indigenous Studies. And I'm still teaching there now. Uh, I teach courses in traditional knowledge in the modern world. I teach uh, First Nations heritage stewardship. And I also have taught Indigenous environmental activism uh, and uh, methods for researching uh, in First Nation Studies. And when did you decide to start writing those two books? Well, way back in the 1980s, when I first uh, graduated from uh, the University of Calgary, I got my degree in archaeology, and then I also got a degree in uh, archaeology, both undergraduate degrees. And I started uh, doing some creative writing at that point, you know, uh, using my uh, archaeology background to uh, make stories about sites that I had visited or worked at. 
and I had some of them published in uh, a book for uh, a press in Alberta that was uh, called Ordinary Lives in, in Canadian History, and then uh, another one which was Ordinary People in Alberta's History. And each one of these uh, had small stories where uh, young people were at the heart of the stories. And so I, I had those uh, published, and then uh, I got accepted uh, to graduate school. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, I'll go off and do this uh, graduate degree and then get back to my uh, writing. And then uh, as the way things turned out, uh, I never got back. I got too involved with uh, academic life and um, doing uh, academic writing. So uh, I, then I recently had the opportunity to go back to the creative writing aspects when uh, Anik Press uh, approached me about uh, doing these two volumes. And I was... Immediately agreed, you know, and, and I wanted to uh, do this again. So uh, that was how I returned to this aspect of, uh, you know, something I really like doing, writing. I really do enjoy writing. All my, all my writing has, has always been very academic uh, for an audience that are other, other academics. So I wanted to do something that appealed to more uh, public audience. Also, it's it's my own way of uh, giving something back. You know, uh, when I was uh, in university, it was the Pagan Board of Education, uh, the community that I'm from, who supported me all through my academic uh, studies. They paid my tuition, and uh, that allowed me to go to uh, some very fine universities. And this is, you know, uh, I did. I wanted them to be able to get something back from their investment in me. So uh, I wrote these books with, you know, like now people that I grew up with uh, and their children in mind, you know, that they should get something from uh, all the studies that I've done in archaeology and, and history. Why were you interested in writing for a younger audience instead of perhaps writing these for like adults? Uh, well, you know, I also have uh, nephews and nieces uh, who are much younger than me, and also and now they're having children who are, you know, uh, even younger, another generation. And so uh, I think I've always uh, been a bit of an enigma to them because of the work that I do, and uh, I try to interpret this uh, career of mine so that they have a, a better understanding of uh, the work I've done and this is a good medium to use to make that happen. Uh, I also have to say that uh, young people, Aboriginal people, have very few uh, reading material that they can reference that is specifically about them and for them. You know, when I was uh, growing up in the uh, education system, I never saw books like this. I never saw books that were written specifically for Indigenous young people telling them stories about their own culture and their own history. And, and so I wanted to contribute something so that you know, the young readers in the present and going into the future can look to these volumes and, and see something about themselves and see people who look like them and have a, a similar history and have it 
be uh, interpreted by an indigenous person, an indigenous writer. In your reading, you, you read about horses, but of course, eagles are a character that kind of follow us through in this book. And I, I wondered um, why it was so significant for you to include the eagle in the title and in the story in the beginning. And of course, the last chapter has the eagle has landed in in it as well. Yeah, you know, uh, I use the eagle as a, as a metaphor uh, for our uh, view on history, you know, because we we being bound to the land, uh, we only see what is immediately around us, and so I, I thought, yeah, that's that's kind of like history, you know. Like when you're looking at history, you have your own family history, your own personal history, and you can see that. Uh, but as you start to take a longer view of history, you start to see more uh, complexity and more details. And so I use that metaphor of the eagle uh, flying because the fly, the higher the eagle soars, the more it sees. And so it has a better view of the land and the country. And so in this way, I, I look at history as kind of being something that the, the longer the uh, view of history that you use, the more things start to make sense. And And that's the main purpose of our studies of history is to make sense of the present and to interpret history in, in such a way that uh, it gives us some ideas about how we got to this point, uh, but also how we can uh, make plans for the future as well. And that last chapter, you know, the eagle has landed. Uh, I specifically took that because that was uh, when the uh, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Uh, that was what they, the first words that we heard from the lunar surface. And I just thought that was uh, such a, a good metaphor for how we can use this uh, in going into the future, you know, how we can use that as uh, looking back on the earth and seeing the earth kind of uh, as uh, this ball in the vastness of space, you know, and, seeing uh seeing history in similar to that you know that uh history is not over that it is going to continue and uh future historians will look back on this era and uh, have their own questions about how we uh you know had our time here on earth and what our contribution was some of the sections I really enjoyed in the books were the ones um, labeled Imagine. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those sections and why you included, decided to include them. Yeah, we do those little vignettes uh, as a way to put uh, children to put them in the center of a, a complex situation where they are characters in history. And in this way, it uh, allows them to have some interaction with the, with the narrative. Because history can be very uh, passive in, in the way we read it. You know, unless you're a professional historian like myself, where you're, you're going and you're looking at uh, original uh, sources. When you're reading history, it, it is all about, you know, taking in the experiences of others as they uh, encountered unique situations. Uh, and in doing these vignettes, uh, it's taking the reader and placing the reader into the into the action 
so that they feel that they have an active uh, participant, they are active participants in the making of history. Yeah, they're really powerful little moments to, to sit with. And I really enjoyed that part of the book. Yeah, and also I have to I have to say, you know, that some of them are uh, kind of from my own experience. Like, for example, the part about the horses and the little boy being put onto the horse for the first time. I, I you know, I grew up on a farm uh, back in the uh, 60s. And in those days, we still had horses all around us and we used horses on an everyday basis. Um, but the first time, you know, that I rode a horse by myself, you know, I'm feeling how uh, a little bit anxious and a little bit frightened and uh but at the same time uh just kind of feeling a little bit exhilarated because of the uh you know horse being uh such a powerful animal and, and there i am riding it and I'm trying to make myself comfortable on it you know so uh, i kind of use that my memory of that experience to uh, create this little vignette yeah I, I wondered, because um, some of the themes in the book are around rebellion and resistance, and I wondered how those themes have played out in your own life and how you were able to refer to your own experiences when engaging with those themes. Oh, yeah, certainly. You know, uh, I mean, we took the, that idea of rebellion and resistance uh, and renewal, you know, to uh, kind of guide the way we're presenting this material. Uh, but I've always been an activist, you know, even back in uh, when I was an undergraduate at uh, University of Lethbridge, where I first started my uh, student career, I was part of the Native American Students Association. And we were doing things like, uh, for example, we, we brought uh, powwows to the University of Lethbridge, you know, uh, we, this is in 1975, we held our first uh, Native American Awareness Days. And the culmination of that was this powwow that we held. And it was an instant success, you know. And even, I was just back at the university there uh, a couple of years ago for a conference. And uh, they still have Native, well, now it's uh, Indigenous Awareness Days, you know. And, but they still have a powwow there, you know. And, and so this is like things that we started way back when to kind of educate people on, uh, you know, the condition of Native people. Uh, but also, you know, like one of the things that uh, I became active in was uh, protesting uh, the treatment of uh, Native people. And uh, I remember one of the uh, groups that we tried to bring to public attention was uh, mercury poisoning of uh, Indigenous communities in Northern Ontario. And uh, we had a conference about uh, Minamata disease, the uh, mercury poisoning, and we brought people in from Japan to uh, give lectures and to raise awareness of the situation of the people in, in northern Ontario. Uh, and so that kind of uh, act, student activism was, uh, was always uh, part of my uh, experience of campus life. And, uh, you know, although I, when I went to... Uh, Simon Fraser University and McGill, I was doing graduate uh, studies. And it, even there it was, uh, you know, for example, when I was doing my archaeology research on back on my reserve in the summer of 1990, uh, that was when the Oka crisis was taking place. And I would go out and do my surveys uh, during the day. But as soon as I got home, you know, it was on the news. And it was difficult for me to ignore all of that and to strictly 
focus on uh, my student research, you know. So uh, I had my own uh, opportunities to participate in uh, events, you know, where it was held in order to raise public awareness of these, uh, what was going on there. And then also what was happening on my reserve, because uh, there was a group of people called the Lone Fighters who were protesting uh, water rights uh, that were being uh, hemmed in by the construction of uh, a dam upriver from our reserve, uh, the Three Rivers Dam. Although I didn't go and walk on the picket lines or participate in the protests, you know, I, I used my skills in archaeology to uh, at least how to preserve some of the archaeological material that was going to be flooded when the reservoir was created, you know. So I worked on the uh, salvage archaeology uh, to uh, remove some of the archaeological material that was going to be flooded. There's so much interesting material in the book, and I, I wondered how you decided what was included and if there's going to be a third volume of things that you just couldn't fit in. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it, it was a, a big chore, you know, because there's just so much, and you had, you know, you had to be conscious that, and then, you know, like when you're writing for young people, it's it's not about dumbing down your, your stories or, or diluting the information, rather it's, it's about writing it in a way that is accessible to, to younger readers, you know. Uh, at the same time, I've actually been told by a lot of adults that they like reading these because it's not sequential. You don't have to pick it up and read from page one and read until you get to page a hundred. Rather you can open the book up at any place and start reading and find something new or some information, you know? Uh, so that part of it has been, uh, you know, trying to select those key moments, but when, you know, we're also bringing up some very, uh, heavy topics such as that, you know, genocide, writing about genocide and, and making it uh, without, without being judgmental, you know, not, not saying, oh, this is uh, poor Rasen, uh curse them, you know, we're, we're rather trying to be uh, like, what were the conditions that led to that and how did that influence and how did that affect uh, the way people experience their own history and culture. So we're, yeah, we had to we had to be able to uh, pick and choose, you know. And you know, the same was with with Turtle Island, which had more of a focus on archaeology and uh, mythology. But we also uh, threw in a, a good dollop of oral history and uh, contemporary life to kind of round it out. Uh, we in this uh, we very. Uh, deliberately focus more on history and to focus on key moments in history that were pivotal to the uh, way that Native people and their encounters with the, with the larger world. Um, yeah, my co-author Kathy and I, uh, Kathy Lowinger, she and I are working on a third volume. Uh, and this one is going to be more uh, about science and technology uh, and the way that ancient peoples, traditional cultures, and modern indigenous people uh, use scientific methods and uh, scientific knowledge uh, in their daily lives, but also uh, the contributions that they made and how that influenced their cultures. 
sounds sounds really interesting because you kind of um, nodded to that a little bit with the kayak in in the early part of the book. So I'm yeah. sure there'll be lots of good information. Well, one of the things that I'm really interested in is uh, astronomy. You know, one of the areas where I've uh, focused in my uh, archaeology research is an area called archaeoastronomy. And that's uh, how ancient people use uh, astronomical knowledge uh, to help them create things such as calendars or to uh, help them make plans. Uh, and there's a lot of star lore in, in Blackfoot culture. And I wanted to reinterpret that those star myths uh, and tell them what was the what was the scientific basis behind the telling of this story. Thanks so much to Eldon for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks, as always, to you, our lovely listeners, for subscribing, listening, and sharing the podcast. If you want to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You'll also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Coming up next week, I talk to Nazanin Hozar, who wrote the beautiful novel Aria. Aria is a finalist for the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.